Amen. You may be seated. Emmanuel has come to us. This is hope for the hopeless. Hope for the hopeless has arrived. Do you have your notes? Take out your notes. Take out your Bible. This morning we're going to come, and the title of the message is Hope for the Hopeless has arrived. If you don't have notes and you're in here, just lift your hand. There's guys in the aisle. They'll see your hand. They'd love to have you uh, give you one. If you're joining us online, want you to know that there's notes available on the website. The sermon will make a whole lot more sense to you if you will go ahead and download those, print those out, and use them this morning. Well, 2020 has been a humdinger. It has been a real one, right? In fact, I've kind of prepared a little bit of a statement here at the beginning of things to help us see not only in our day and time, but also as we look back uh, where we've been studying the book of Micah, um, same time as, as Isaiah, both of them together, where there was great trouble in the land, and yet God was bringing certainly that trouble upon them as part of a judgment, part of a warning, part of a warning to look to him. And we see much of the judgment around us in the troubles of this life calling us to be warned. So 2020 has been a humdinger. We live in a world that hasn't been this turned upside down since perhaps World War II, at least for Americans and perhaps Europeans. There's other parts of the world that have had war since then. And they would say, well, wait a minute. In Iraq, it was pretty bad over the last few years. Some would say, well, wait a minute. Vietnam was pretty bad for those who lived in Vietnam. You know, but the world in general hasn't been as shaken as it has in this year. And certainly America has not. To be sure, while some cities have experienced some violence, most have not. And none have been bombed like, they, like London was or Berlin or Tokyo or other noted cities. But nonetheless, we have gone through and are going through a tumultuous time. For many, these have been months characterized by fear, loss, anger, strife, division. How about this? Uncertainty. The combination of the political upheaval, a biological threat, and really weaponized technology and communication, and I mean that in the most technical of ways that we have used technology um, in messaging from social media to algorithms about what comes up in your Google searches, all of those things that for those of you who have watched the social dilemma, these pressures along with a biological threat, along with the political things, all of this coming together has brought about a great deal of division and isolation from both global levels and national levels to, how about this, all the way down to the local communities of work, school, and even among families. These have been tumultuous, divisive days. Satan, the prince of the power of the air and of this present darkness, is masterfully playing humanity against itself and working overtime to turn the hearts and minds of people away from God and away from one another. 
This morning, I want us to look at a few verses that helps us see the hope out of this darkness. This morning, I want us to take a few moments and look at a swath of scriptures that lift us up to God's grand plan of reconciliation between us and him and us and one another. Because that is what Christmas really represents. You know, very often when we study the Bible here at Sheridan Hills, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll take one verse and we'll tear it all apart, right? We'll go through it word by word sometimes. And uh, many of you appreciate that. You, you want to see why did God use that? Why did he say it that way? Why was, you know, last week is a great example of that. Um, notice the, the slide from last week. We talked about the fact that last week we were savoring Micah 5.2. We just looked at one verse last week. Um, as our point of study. And it was all over, do you remember what it was about? The significance of what? The significance of Bethlehem. That was, that was most of the message about why, why Micah 5.2 is naming the city where the coming Messiah 700 years later would be born. So it's a very important prophecy. It's, and and we, we see it's not just that, oh, wow, God named the city 700 years beforehand. How cool. That's the sign. No, no, no. There, there's a whole lot more, too, we saw last week, about why Bethlehem? Why would God use this as part of the redemptive story that he's weaving for us? Well, this morning, we don't want to look at just one verse. We want to look at several passages that, not unlike Micah 5.2, Many of them have to do with prophecy. Many of them have to do with this proclaiming of the one who is going to rescue you and give you hope out of the hopelessness. I've made the slide the way I've made it this morning because there's darkness in the world. And the light of Christ, the light of the Messiah, is coming into the world to deliver the world from that darkness. Notice, and we're going to read through these once, and then we're going to flip the sheet over, and we're going to go through and pick out three key truths that we can see from all of these. So, hope for the hopeless, it has arrived, let's see it, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, notice what it says, and you all be ready because I may ask you to read a little bit with me as we go here, and if we do, just kind of clear your throat and read through that mask so that you can participate. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, look what it says, therefore the Lord, what does it say after that, the Lord what? Himself, the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Key thing here, it doesn't say boy. It's not, it's not, there's a word for boy and there's a word for son. The whole picture here is that this is from God. This is God's son given through the virgin birth to Mary, will bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Put out there to the side, uh, where it says name, title. And that's really the picture here because we don't believe that Jesus was, was called on a day-to-day -day basis um, Emmanuel. But what we do believe and what we do see is that throughout the Scripture we see that like the term Christ is used, Jesus the Christ, he's also referred to as Emmanuel. This is a title more than it is a prenom or a first name. So this is Emmanuel. 
God with us. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Remember with me in Isaiah, Isaiah has declared judgment upon the nation of Israel, very much like Micah. So when we read the first part of Isaiah 9, in verse 1, we see that they have been in judgment. We see that they have been in trouble and hardship. But notice what is going to happen. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So she was in anguish because of judgment. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, what is that all talking about? Just kind of imagine with me here for just a moment. God has been judging his people in Israel, and we see named here tribes that are in the north that were characterized by intermarriage, not with pagans, not honoring God, distant from Jerusalem, distant from the temple, way up there in the middle of nowhere with kind of those backwoods folks that haven't been very faithful to God. That's part of the picture that we see here. And what we see is that out of that area is going to come the Messiah. Look what it says, the Galilee of the nations. That's in the north. Now look at verse 2. The people who walked in what? Darkness have seen what? A great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We're going to talk about that some more in just a minute. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. So there's just a few verses further down. For here it is, here's the Savior. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Just right out there to the side the Holy Trinity. Now, we're not naming specific phrases here in that, but what we see that this Lord Jesus is the God of the Trinity. This Lord Jesus, the Son that is born, is yet still God, all of God. Now then we come down to another prophecy of a different sort, not from the Old Testament, but notice where this prophecy is from. It is from Luke, which is one of the Gospels of the New Testament. But this is Zechariah's prophecy, a righteous man in the day of Jesus' birth. And God had planned that a forerunner to the King Messiah would come, and his name was John the Baptist. And so born also under miraculous circumstances, if you go back and read the story of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who would be born, we see that his father prophesied as a result of this. And look what it says in verse 76. He's speaking of his son and the one that he will go before. And he says, and you, child, now that's John the Baptist, you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Put a line above that word highest going up there and just put out there Jesus. 
Because that's who John is going before. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Every king had a forerunner. You would send somebody ahead. You know, whenever our president travels, whichever president he is, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump, whatever, whenever our president goes somewhere, there is a whole entourage that goes with him, but do you know that there's an advance team that goes before him? I mean, there are diplomats that go before him to make sure that, hey, is everything all set in this country where he's going? And then there are security teams that go before him. There's logistics folks that go before him. There's all kinds of folks that go before him. But there are folks that show up with authority before he arrives for his, his interactions and for his work. And that is very much what we would see throughout history, that when a king goes from there, someone goes and declares that he's coming, works out and declares his way. And that's exactly what John the Baptist was doing. Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God. So this is what that king is going to do. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Now, that word dayspring is capitalized, and it's done by the translators. They capitalize it because it is a reference to the great, beautiful dayspring and dawn of a new era in Christ. This is Jesus who would come and visit us, God in the flesh. Look at verse 79. And here's the reason that he comes. To give light to those who sit in what? In darkness and the shadow of of death. You see, in a sinful and fallen world, we sit in our darkness, and because sin has entered the world, death has entered the world, and we come and we see our plight of darkness and death. And look what it says there at the end, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into what? The way of peace. Can you put a big circle around the way of peace? You see, this is the grand and glorious message of Christmas. In the midst of whether it be 750 years before Jesus would come, Isaiah's day, Micah's day, or whether it be in the first century um, of great turmoil, of the third century of persecution against the church, of all of the difficulties of the dark ages, from plagues to wars to darkness to a corrupt church, to the days of the Reformation in the 15s, 1500s and 1600s when the church and the gospel is being reclaimed and there's great trouble and difficulty there, to the days of this present century all the way to 2020, that there is darkness throughout every epoch of time. And God says, I am the way of peace. Look at John chapter 1 and verse thir- 1 through 13. This is the beginning of John's gospel. Um, Not John the Baptist, but John the disciple. And the way he writes it and the way he begins it sounds very similar to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But notice here, John is keen off of that to the beginning of his gospel, describing that God has come into the world. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. See, he's creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4. In him was life, and that life 
was the, what does it say there? The light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We just talked about him, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, the world that was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here is the picture. From Old Testament to New Testament, this picture of Messiah's proclamation, Messiah coming to be born. And I just want us to notice here on this Christmas Sunday a few beautiful truths about this. If we're going to have hope in the midst of our darkness, if we desire to have hope in all of this, there's three things. Um, there are probably several others we could mention, but there's three that I want to pull from these passages that show us something about hope. Hope requires, number one, hope requires holiness. Hope requires holiness. Really, Pastor? Holiness? Why would you choose that one? Well, my friends, Notice Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God is a holy God, and he requires holiness to be before him. If you want to be before God, you have to be holy. You have to be completely holy. Well, how in the world do people entrenched in sin, in bondage of sin, who are, are even to this moment still sinning in our minds and our hearts and our, our lives to some degree, how, how do we come before a holy God when our position of, of sin is so entrenched. Well, we have to be made holy. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we, we have a real problem. We're, we're not going to have hope if it's up to us with our condition of sin. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you reap leads to, circle it. What does it say? The fruit you reap, the benefit for you is holiness. And the outcome is what? Eternal life. You see, look at the screen in front of you. Up in Romans 5.12, we see that death is, is, is the result of our sin. We come to death through sin, but we come to life through holiness. And that's what, if you want to have hope, that is what you need, is the holiness that comes from God. So here's the next big point as part of number one. It's a, it's a second part of it. Hope requires holiness, and through Christ, God brings his holiness to us. 
Through Christ, God brings his holiness to us. Now, if you would, just flip the page over there and remember what Isaiah 7.14 says. Or you can look at the screen. Look at Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's what God is doing. God is giving his holiness to us through Jesus who is not only going to be born a holy child as opposed to coming into a sinful race, he's going to be a holy child because this child is not from this world. This child is from God. You see, what this is all pointing to is the meaning, the great meaning of the virgin birth. So we can ask ourselves, why the virgin birth? And I find really every Christmas, somewhere in some of these Christmas messages, we need to answer this question because it it can seem so strange to someone who's never been taught why the virgin birth is so important. But it's a critical part of our theology. It's a critical part of God's, listen, of God's salvation plan to the world. The virgin birth is critically important to God's plan to redeem us. This is part of the redemption plan. You see, Christ the Messiah is conceived of what? The Holy Spirit, not sinful man. This is not as a product of that which is in a world that is lost in sin and and passing sin from generation to generation through the seed of man. In fact, in um, Psalm 51, you would read, in sin my mother conceived me. Uh, David wasn't talking about the fact that his mother was was in an immoral relationship. David was recognizing the fallen state of man. I mean, a good evidence of this is with any of our children that are here, um, any of you that are parents, did, did you have to teach your children to do the wrong thing? Jose, Gina, did you have to teach Alex to do the wrong thing? He just naturally does the wrong thing. (laughs) Ashley, I'm sorry, but you married a guy who actually just naturally does the wrong thing. And you know what? We're all that way. We naturally do the wrong thing. Why? Because sin has entered our hearts. Sin has entered our hearts from our conception. We, We are in a state that is fallen, and we desperately need the Savior, after just a little while, as soon as they can kind of do anything. I mean, you know, a simple cry of, I'm hungry, can turn into a, a cry of, I'm angry at you. And you can kind of see them. They just kind of look at you, even in their small state. They get angry, and they get mad, and they get selfish. And, and if you don't begin forming them, they will go the way of destruction without help. They can't even sustain themselves. This is all part of the picture of God's grace and giving us parents that teach us what is right and teach us what is true and pull us back from self-destruction. But God does this ultimately through Jesus Christ as he that comes in the virgin birth. You see, notice this third one. The virgin birth is not only a sign, but also a necessary function of our salvation. It's not just, oh, wow, that's kind of amazing, Mary has a child without, without ever having sexual relations with, with a man, that, that's just a sign. Well, it does say that it's a sign, but we see in other places of Scripture that all of these pictures that know this Messiah had to be perfect, had to be a perfect sacrifice. Notice this. 
The virgin birth leads to the perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's what it does. Because he's not of man, he's of God. Notice the next one there. Without the virgin birth, there would be no worthy sacrifice to pay for sin. This is, I, Andrew Coleman can't pay for Andy Tolbert's sin. Why? Because Andrew Coleman is a sinner. Andy can't pay for Andrew's sin. Why? Because Andy's a sinner. We need a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that we look at this and we say, this is not just in our eyes that the perfect sacrifice would pay for the sinful, but God says, exactly. This is my love given for you. This is the glorious nature of the gospel, that there would be a worthy sacrifice for our sins, and this is why the virgin birth is important. Notice this, the virgin birth assumes the preexistent divine sonship of Jesus. And I want you to write in the word preexistent there because that's an important word for you to recognize, that Jesus existed before the world began. And Jesus existed before a baby was born in Bethlehem. The Bible says that Jesus has always been The Bible says that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is eternal, and that, in fact, the whole world was created through him. That's what we just read in John 1. And so this is is simply the beautiful point of this. The last point here is the virgin birth is the way by which God, fill it in, joins humanity to save humanity. This is God showing up. This is God coming to deliver us. This is, you say, well, why did he do it this way? I I can't explain the why that he did it this way, except that all of his ways are perfect and just. His plan is glorious. And it's our job not to necessarily understand all the whys of why he does things the way he does, but to recognize what he's done and to trust him and to believe him, to receive him. There's so many things about the virgin birth that are amazing. It's that God would come and join humanity in our trouble, that God would come in the helpless form of a baby, that God would need to be changed, that God would cry in hunger, that God would submit himself to an earthly form, leaving behind, as Philippians chapter 2 says, all of the glory in heaven and taking that robe off and putting on the robe of our flesh. In all of this, God is saying I love you. That's what this means. He's saying, I love you. So hope requires holiness. And we get no holiness unless we have a perfect sacrifice. And so one of the first things for us to recognize is that Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 shows us that this one who would come and die for our sins is holy, and he has come to give us hope. Number two, hope also requires, we see in all these verses, it requires light. Hope requires light. Now, um, there's been many times in many stories, I, I was thinking through this and I was thinking about all of the times that we've read stories of a rescue. And maybe it's somebody who's lost in the woods at night, or maybe it's somebody who's down 
one of the miners, you know, that are down in the ground, and they're there in the utter darkness of the ground, and then finally a light uh, is revealed, and, and there, there's hope in that. There's, there's many stories all through the ages of how we're, we're held in a, in a dark circumstance, it brings great fear, but then light appears, and there is hope. When I think about all of the stories um, of, uh, that are so popular in, throughout human, human history and human literature, um, I think about uh, the prominence of how darkness represents sin and evil and how light represents that which is true and saving to us. Um, why would this be? Why would a world be characterized as dark in sin and death? And why would the hope of salvation be considered light? Well, part of the picture is, is that God is light. The Bible tells us that is who He is. And in His holiness, in His power, He is light. When I think about every Batman film that's been made in the last 25 years, every Star Wars film that's been made, when you, 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 you hear all of the imagery, you, see all, you, you hear all of the descriptions and you see all of the imagery of darkness versus light. Every Disney storyline outside of that is very often we see the darkness and the evil versus the light and that which is true and that which is good. So here we want to see these passages, and notice this. Hope requires light. First of all, let's see the opposite of that. In Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 19, the way of the wicked, this is what it says, the way of the wicked is, what does it say? Deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So the picture is that they're in the dark, and they're stumbling around, and they don't even know why, and they don't even know what. You know, how many times have we seen um, friends of ours who do not know the Lord, and they're, they're like a pinball going from pillar to post in the machine, getting knocked around, and each one has them go in a different direction, and, we, and, and they don't even know why. They don't even realize how from one relationship to another relationship, from one earthly pursuit to another earthly pursuit, for searching and, and seeking striving for things that don't bring true life, and they, they don't know why. Look at John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now, if you would, look at where that is in the, in the gospel of John. It is, those statements are the exact opposite of just a few verses before that in John chapter 3 and verse 16. We just, we just read it together in the, in the reading. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting light. But people loved the darkness. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 23. But if your eye is bad, Jesus is speaking, he says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body would be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Over and over again, we see in the gospel the picture of light versus dark, sin versus life. 
Matthew 22 and verse 13. There's, and, and this is just one out of many passages that make this similar statement. And here it's talk, Jesus is speaking. He's talking about being cast into outer darkness. And these same words are used over and over again about the outer darkness. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now put out there to the side of that, no hope. where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is where the, the condition that we're in without a Savior. This is the condition that the world sits in, in its sin, stumbling around and not knowing why. So hope requires light. And how do we get light? We comes through Christ. You see, through Christ, fill it in, light enters a world that is dark in sin. That's what happens at the first Christmas, as so to speak. This is what happens at the incarnation of the Messiah, who would pay for the sins of the world. Would you flip your page back over and notice these again? I want you to just notice them in this picture of light. First of all, up there, Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Look what it says in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, that's not only talking about in Isaiah's day, but that is a picture of what is coming of the Messiah who's going to deliver us out of all of our sin. And then remember with me in Luke chapter 1, this is Zechariah speaking of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is going to be the precursor to this, to, to this Messiah. In verse 79, he says, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into, what did we circle? The way of peace. And then in John 1, how beautiful is this picture? We see over and over, and this is why so many carols at Christmas, this is why so many hymns about the gospel talk about the light of Christ. Look what it says in John chapter 1 in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Read verse 5 out loud. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, you see that the darkness has, in every age, tried to overcome it. In fact, one of the first big attempts was Herod the Great hearing that a baby was born who was to be a king. Three magi show up from the east, or magi show up from the east, and they say, where is the king that was born? And Herod goes, hmm, you tell me, where is he born? I'd like to know myself. I'd like to worship him. On the end of a sword... And so Herod sets out to murder every child in the region that possibly could be within the age time of that. You see, there's always been a fight against the light. There's always been a resistance to God's grand plan of salvation. We live in a world that rages against God. And even after he's come and raised the dead made the lame to walk and the blind to see before their very eyes, they would not believe. And Jesus said, you do not believe because you have loved the darkness rather than the light. That's exactly what he said. So we come and we start to notice that while this, this darkness is trying to overcome the light, 
It does not, and it certainly will not. You read all of the prophecy of Scripture, and you see the power of God that He has a grand plan for this time that brings Him glory. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone. John chapter 1, verse 9, at the bottom of the page. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, the world that was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, now put out there to the side, the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israel. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, verse 12 is so important, I quote this in about half of the sermons that I preach. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, and put a line down below the word name that says Jesus or Yeshua. And what did we say Yeshua means? God saves. That is his name. Those who believe in his name mean this, that they believe that God saves. Salvation is from God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is ultimately talking about the rebirth that Jesus said, no one can enter heaven without being born again. This is what it means to come in faith to Jesus. So, these, these passages show us that light enters the world. And turn your sheet back over and just notice 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This also captures it so beautifully. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, kind of going back to the creation, going back to let there be light. Who, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, underline it, in the face of Jesus Christ. So how do we have the light and the knowledge of the glory of God? It comes through one path. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through the face of Jesus Christ that would be marred for our sins. It comes through the beard that would be plucked out, the, nail of, the, the crown of thorns that would be forced down upon his head, the arms and the legs that would be nailed to a cross and lifted up to be mocked, a spear would be thrust into his side. All of this is the face of Jesus Christ. So how do we come to know God? Through the perfect sacrifice. So hope requires holiness. There's no one, there's no one that's going to have hope without holiness, and the only way to have holiness is through Jesus. Hope requires light. How does light enter the world? It's through the coming of the Messiah. And hope we also see in Isaiah 9, 6 requires, number three, hope requires godly rule or godly reign. Notice with me Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. It's on the screen in front of you. Look what it says. Or you can flip the sheet over and look at it. Isaiah 9, 6, right in the middle of the page. Look what it says. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. And I, and I know what's on the screen. There you go. Thank you. Um, I want you to notice these things. So this child is going to wind up wearing, what does it mean? The government shall be upon his shoulder. Here's part of the picture. You know, some of you have this image in your mind of Mr. Atlas, right? Mr. Atlas all built up and, and the whole world is sitting on his shoulder. You know, you, you might have that mentality, that, that image in your mind. No, that, that's not the picture. The picture is this, that when a king is a king and he's standing there in all of his regal regalia, all of his, all of his dress, he has a sash. Most kings in the world and throughout history, they have a sash that sits over them. If you were to look at various kings, even in Europe today, they will often wear at the most formal events, they will wear a sash and it will have certain insignia upon it, certain medals that are upon it. And that sash is the picture. It's like the crown. It's like the crown of their authority. And that's part of the picture that we see here. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He is the ruler. And this ruler is not going to be like all of your horrible kings. Now, we can go back to Ahaz. We can go back to all of the kings that were turning Israel every which way but loose, making a mess, leading them in the wrong ways, bringing on the judgment of God. You see, that's the context in which Isaiah is written, is they've had a bunch of bad kings that have brought the judgment of God and brought hopelessness to them. But the message of God is, I'm the good king. And I'm going to ultimately reign in such a way that you have blessing and peace. So the government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to be the king. And his name is going to be called the Wonderful Counselor, not the Raging Lunatic, not the Evil-Minded Person. He's going to be called the Mighty God, not your powerless little king. He's going to be the everlasting Father, so this is a king that has a father heart toward you, and he is not going to bring for you war and strife and trouble. He's going to bring you what? Peace. So you see that Isaiah is declaring that the Messiah that's going to come, he's going to be the ruler that is the righteous ruler of God. And so fill this in. Through Christ, righteous leadership brings peace and hope. And whose righteous leadership is it? Well, it's his. He is the one of righteous leadership that brings peace and hope. Now, I hope you have your Bible. We're going to look at Luke 1, and that's on the screen, 31 and 33. But then we're also going to look over at Psalm 2 as we close. Look at Look at, notice this. First of all, what is, the, what is point number three? Let's read point number three out loud. It's on the screen right in front of you. What does hope require? Godly rule. And how do we get that? Through Christ, say it, righteous leadership brings peace and hope. Now look at Luke chapter 1, verse 31. It's on the screen. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is the angel to Mary. Look at verse 32. And he will be great, and we be call, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, look what it says, the throne of his father David. And so this is the picture, that this is the high king that they've been waiting for. In verse 33, look what it says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, how long? Forever. 
and his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. You see, this is the eternal king. This is the king that can rule over your heart forever and who can save you forever. Now, if you have your Bible, take it and turn to Psalm 2, and I'm going to give you a minute to get there. Take your Bible, just open it right to the middle, and uh, very often if you go right to the middle, you'll hit the book of Psalms and go to Psalm 2. And this is such a beautiful psalm for us this morning in light of this message because it really does describe the condition of the world and this beautiful picture of Messiah, the Lord Jesus, coming in the birth of a baby to redeem the world. It shows the strife of our world, shows the trouble of our world, very similar to 2020 right here, right now. It's amazing how God's Word is so timeless. Look at Psalm chapter 2 and verse 1. Why do the nations rage in the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, this is the picture of what the world does. The world says, oh no, we can build. It's almost like the mentality of the Tower of Babel. We can do this, and we'll, we'll make it for ourselves. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. And who is it that would tell us that this is wrong or that is wrong? We, we can tell what's right and wrong. We can do what we want to do. That is certainly the mentality of this age. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hills. You see, this is the place of his salvation. And he has set his king who will rule over the earth in his place, regardless of all of these earthly kings that are so foolish. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the high and glorious King Jesus. The Redeemer who will come and save his own, but who will slay his opponents. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Everybody read the last line out loud. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, this is the coming Messiah. This is the one who says, come and recognize that salvation is from God, not from you, not from anything else. And you need salvation because you are set apart in darkness. So, one, hope requires holiness. Through Christ, God brings his holiness. Two, hope requires light. Through Christ, light enters a world that is dark. Number three, hope requires godly rule. Through Christ, righteous leadership brings peace and hope. 
for eternity. But there's some key questions. In light of all this, ask yourself, do you have the holiness of God? Do you have the holiness of God? Has God made you holy? That's a question you should not go to death without knowing the answer to. Because God will not accept anything that is not holy. You see, there's one way that it's gained. It's gained through faith in Christ. It's only gained through faith in Christ. It's not gained through works. You can't, you can't work off your sinful deeds. Moralism says, be good, be good, be good. People have come to churches all over the world, and they hear for years, be good, be good, be good. You know, if you're good, ultimately the message is, if you're good, God will let you in. That means that you are the Savior. But the message of the Bible is, you ain't good. You're never going to be good without being forgiven. That's the only way that you can be right with God. The only way that you can have His holiness is that His blood would wash you clean. Do you have the holiness of God? It's only gained through faith in Christ. How about the next one? And this is a little bit of an indicator of that. Do you walk in darkness or light? Your daily life, right here in South Florida, your, your life here on the earth, wherever you're from, wherever you live, how about at your house? How about in your relationships, in your work? How about this, in your mind? In your mind, do you walk in darkness or do you walk in light? And here's another question of that. Is your standard the fallen world or God's Word? Because the light of God's Word is the only way that we can truly know what is of Him and what He desires. So, the second set of questions there can help you with the first. How about this one? Does Christ rule? You remember we said you need righteous rulership if you want peace and hope. Does Christ rule as king in your heart? Does Christ rule as king in your heart? I mean, who's in charge, you or him? You know, in order for him to rule, you have to listen to him. Otherwise, you're not listening. How would you know? Do, well, do you listen to him? Do you spend time with him? Do you wait upon him? Are you too busy? Are you too consumed with things in your life? Do you wait on God? God promises that all who wait upon me, they will not be disappointed. God says that all who will come and listen and learn of me, they will be satisfied. You see, coming to church isn't doing God a favor. Some folks think, well, as long as I go to church, I mean, good night, it's COVID and I'm showing up at the place. I must really be something. No, friends. The picture is, are we really seeing Christ as king? Does he order our days? Does he change our values? Does he change our morality? 
Does he change our, our speech, our tongue, whether we tell the truth or whether we tell lies, whether we speak profane things? Or, I mean, are we living in the truth? Is Christ king? You see, he will have no rivals. He will have no rivals. Christ calls us to submit to him as king, to trust in him as savior, and to rejoice in him as the prince of peace, the glorious forever king. Would you stand with me for prayer? Whether you're right here in this room right now or whether you're at home, we've been asked some questions to evaluate our hearts. And I hope and pray that you won't just kind of think, oh, the sermon's over, it's, it's just done. Or even here in this room, who am I going to greet? What am I going to do? Where are we going to eat lunch? Those aren't the big questions right now. The big questions are, is Christ the king of my heart? Is he Lord? The real questions are, is my holiness found in his sacrifice for sin? Do I even understand what that means? Brothers and sisters, I call you to rejoice in the truth of Christmas through a Savior who would come and give us hope. The true light into the world that has no rivals and that lovingly bids us to come and to bring all of our trouble, all of our struggle, all of our sin, all of our mistakes, all our failures, all our mess-ups, he calls us to come and to bring it all to him. And he says, let me make you new. Father, I pray that this morning that perhaps here at this Christmas time that you would be helping people see whether or not they know you. If they don't know you, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would truly convict them deeply. Lord, that you are the high king of heaven that calls them to worship him. I pray that even right now that they would turn away from their sin and say, yes, Lord, you are Lord, I am not. You have died and I need a savior. Father, I pray that that would be the case. And Lord, I pray that Christians in this room would be reminded of the glory of Christmas the glory of the incarnation, that God would come into the darkness and rescue us and give us eternal life. Father, I thank you for this. Pray that we would never be the same because we've come to see who you are. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you sing together with Pastor Lucas?